So before I get started in our, our teaching this evening, I want to take a minute or two and do a little bit of cleanup. So the last time I was here, we were in the book of Numbers, chapter 15, and we were talking about intentional and unintentional sin. And I waded out into some verses there at the very end of the chapter that I wasn't fully prepared to talk through. And you had the, the recording of a man who was caught gathering wood, intentionally sinning on the Sabbath, and he ended up being stoned. And on the surface, when I look at that, my immediate thought is, man, that's a little bit extreme, isn't it? He was gathering wood, and, and he en ends up getting stoned. He was killed for it. And my justifying mind, you know, was... So I went back and did some studying on that. And it's not just what he did on the Sabbath that resulted in that discipline. It's not just that he was breaking the Sabbath. Sure, that was sin. But it's the intentional part of it. He said that he was acting with a high hand. And it took me a little while to really get a grasp of what a high hand is. And I went through the Bible. I found several examples of people with a high hand. We could talk about Jonah and his refusal to go to Nineveh. And in the forefront, he was acting somewhat with a high hand. And there's many examples that, that I could bring forward to think about. One example that we're all familiar with, and it's not the least bit biblical, so hold on for a minute or two. But how many people here have seen the, the movie Forrest Gump? Most people in here? You got a two and a half hour movie about a guy sitting on a park bench. And, and I've seen it probably 10 times, maybe more. <clears throat> There's one part of that movie where that Forrest Gump and Dan are on this shrimp boat in the middle of a hurricane. And Captain Dan hoists himself up on the mast with no legs. And he's raising his fist to God saying, this fight is between you and me. That's acting with a high hand. How many of y'all, when you saw that part, thought to yourself, and God will strike you dead for that? That's acting with a high hand. That's what those verses are talking about. So as we read through that, let's look beyond just the fact that he was working on the Sabbath. His attitude is, is what landed him there. So that was a bit of a struggle for me as I went through that. And it's good when you run into those struggles. It makes you want to search. It makes you dig through the scripture. It makes you pray. It makes you, I need clarity. But that was behavior with a high hand. We should avoid that at all costs. But his attitude's the reason that he received the maximum sen sentence for his, that was his punishment. And God took him out. And I hope this explains that somewhat. Obedience to the law could have saved his mortal life. Obstinance to the law costed him his eternal life. So just bear that in mind if you ponder back through those scriptures and look at that. Interesting study. 
In the, in the previous passages we've talked about, we've seen the lame beggar at the gate of beautiful who was healed, went into the temple with Peter and John. All the people in the temple knew him. They were regulars there. They saw him sitting there at that gate every day, begging for alms, trying to provide some kind of provision for himself. And here he is, not only walking into the temple, but leaping and praising God. And the people are just amazed at what has happened to him. And I find that terminology of what happened to him just so interesting. What happened to him happened to all of us. So now we're at a point where that Peter has this crowd of people wanting to know what's going on, and he has started his second sermon. It's really amazing how that God, through the Holy Spirit, draws these crowds to him for him to preach to. Probably one of the most powerful preachers you'll ever read about. You think about all the great preachers of years gone by, all the Puritans, the Reformers. There's people out there that have these huge reputations. But Peter was, was a man who just preached the word and people repented and believed. So as we, as we move forward, let's remember the Jerusalem Jews had committed sin in the indictment of Jesus Christ to die on the cross. The rulers were guilty as well. And Peter has told us that you acted in ignorance. And what he's saying when he says that, the Jews know a sin of ignorance is a forgivable sin, even if it is killing the Messiah. So as we look back into that and um, start this teaching going forward, remember that they acted in ignorance, point number one. Point number two, the book of Acts nowhere contains a blanket, blanket condemnation of all Jewish people here for this. And if you go to chapter 13 in Acts, you'll see Paul giving the same indictment. This is for the Jerusalem Jews. Those of you who are here and did this, you're guilty. And the Gentiles have a guilt here, point number three. You've got Pilate. You've got the Roman soldiers. They, they carry a responsibility here. And while we have all this human responsibility and all this human guilt of the things that they did, Jesus' suffering was part of God's own divine purpose. Acts chapter 2 verse 23 tells us that it was part of his predetermined, foreordained, and these are all the terminologies of, of Ephesians and Romans 9. It was part of his plan. So we have human responsibility and we have a predetermined plan. So it is at this point that Peter continues the sermon to the Jerusalem Jews, but he starts to have a more compassionate tone, more of a pastoral teaching. And he's just announced that he knows that this was done in ignorance. And the question of what shall be done concerning your sin remains unanswered. But Peter's getting ready to give them an answer. 
So if you would, please stand. We'll turn over to the book of Acts, chapter 3. I'm going to read four verses here, 18 through 21. But the things which God announced beforehand by the mouth of the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. Therefore repent and return, so that your sins may be wiped away, in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send Jesus the Christ appointed for you, whom heaven must receive until the period of restoration of all things, about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from ancient time. Father, we thank you for your word. It is your revelation to us. Help us, Lord, to learn all that you will teach us this evening. Help us to retain it in our minds and apply it to our lives. Have your way this evening and fill us with more knowledge of you. We love you and pray this in Jesus' name. And all God's children said, Amen. So in verse 18, it says, But the things which God announced beforehand by the mouth of all the prophets, that as Christ would suffer, he is thus fulfilled. And there are many Old Testament passages that talk about the suffering of Christ. I've used Isaiah chapter 53, the first 12 verses there. It's also known as the the passage of the suffering servant. I've used that in the study of Acts already. Psalm 22 is another one that we're very familiar with that talks about the crucifixion of Christ. Another one that points it out that I don't think I've used is Zechariah 12, verse 10. And it reads, And I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication so that they will look on me whom they have pierced And they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son. And they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping of a firstborn. You see, not only did the prophets of old foretell of Jesus' suffering, Jesus himself predicted it. Jesus himself told everyone what was going to happen. Luke 24, verses 25 through 27. Speaking to the men on the way to Emmaus. Jesus says to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart, to believe in all that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary the Christ to suffer these things and enter into his glory? And then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he interpreted to them the things concerning himself and all the scriptures. Verse 25 is referencing the fact that as familiar as the Jewish leaders were with the Old Testament scriptures, There's no reason they shouldn't have been able to recognize that Jesus Christ was the Messiah. They should have been the first to have known and fully understand when this prophecy had been fulfilled. And and like I said, there are multiple others you can look up. and, And this search is an excellent study. If you ever need a study topic, start looking through the Old Testament for the scriptures concerning the Messiah. You'll be amazed at how many are in there. Peter's here simply saying that God foretold it. The prophets have spoken it, and Christ's death and resurrection fulfilled it. And this is evidence that the hearers need to realize 
that the rejection and execution of the Messiah did not hinder God's redemptive plan. It fulfilled it. Pohill stated that the mystery of the divine sovereignty worked through a tragedy of human freedom to bring God's eternal purposes for the salvation of humanity. God took the cross, the quintessence of human sin, and turned it into a triumph of resurrection. Took the epitome of sin, the largest example you could, and turned it into our hope. Another interesting item to note is how Peter started both of his sermons speaking on sin. He was speaking about people's guilt within that sin. And today in many of the large megatop churches, you'll hear pastors saying, well, we really don't preach on sin. We don't want people to be offended. I mean, they already know they're sinners, right? We don't need to remind them. That's almost a quote. I guess Peter could have learned a lot from Joel Osteen, right? That's sarcasm. Hopefully uh, y'all didn't take that too seriously. Verse 19, I'm going to go on. Um, Therefore repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. And we have two wor- three words here, repent and return. This is the answer to the question mentioned earlier. What shall be done concerning your sin? Repent and return is the response. What does repent mean? Repent means to think of something differently. To change your mind about things that you formerly believed. Repent normally has a connotation to it that means to turn away from. A 180 degree shift. Not just in direction, so to speak, but in your attitude, in the way you think, in the things you do. But Peter then adds this word, return. And every one of us have heard the preaching of repent and believe. But here he throws this word, return, in there. And this sounds a little bit strange. But when you consider the meaning of return, it's clear to see that Peter desires to emphasize the need to turn from the previous life, or as Paul calls it, the old man, to turn away from that. Return, as used in this verse, refers to the action of reverting or converting even. And you'll see this same word used in verse 26, where it indicates in the Greek to be turned. And when you will read verse 26, next time we get together for this, but that verse even says that they are being turned from their wicked ways. It's not just a decision that you make, but they're actually being turned from their wicked ways. The King James Version records this phrase as repent and be converted. The ESV records it as repent and turn back. Simon Kistemacher paraphrased it to say, repent therefore and turn to God. I think it's clear what Peter intended here. And whatever version of the Bible you're using, the point to be carried away here is that they must renounce their former life. Their thinking must be turned toward Christ. 
And they must stop following their old lifestyle. They must place their trust in the shed blood of Christ for the forgiveness of their sin. You see, true repentance should impact our very inner being. We should feel it in our soul. True repentance changed the way you consider things. That, that thing that I used to do comes into my mind and I immediately say, no. I know I'm not supposed to do this and far too often I know that we will fail. I know that from personal experience. I'm not perfect, never will be until the glorification process comes. But the fact of the matter is I may have used to do whatever that was daily. I may have done it hourly. And now I don't love it anymore. Now I'm saying no to it. It still happens every once in a while. Yeah, we all cave at a time or two, at certain times. But when we do, we have to turn, return, head back to the cross to focus on what we need to be doing. <clears throat> Whatever. The true repentance should impact our very inner soul. We said that. Possibly affect our relationship with God. Should possibly affect our relationship with whoever. Love your neighbor as yourself. It should affect every part of your life. And the tricky part about repentance is that it's not just something that any sinner just decides to do. It's not just saying I'm sorry and I'll try harder next time. It's not some small feeling of guilt. Well, I wish I hadn't done that. But given the opportunity, I probably will again. Repentance is far more than that. You see, it's something that is given or granted to us. Repentance, repentance is not something that we just do. We don't just make a decision and repentance happens. If you turn over to Acts chapter 5, just a few pages back, it'll say this one, the one is capitalized, so we're referring, referring to Jesus here. God exalted to his right hand as a leader and as a savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. Repentance is granted to us the same as forgiveness of sins is. And I know that's going to strike someone somewhere as being a bit strange because there's so many churches out there preaching a, a gospel that says, come on down here and pray this prayer. Do you repent? Yeah. All I can say is this, and you, you can take note here if you want to because I'm going to give you some verses to back this up. Acts chapter 11, verse 18. <clears throat> 2 Corinthians 7, verse 10. 2 Timothy 2, verse 25. Hebrews 12, verses 14 to 17. All of these talk about the granting of repentance. In fact, in my study, I tried to find one somewhere, anywhere, that said, all you have to do is repent, and I couldn't find it. Everywhere when talked about in this application, it's a grant it's given, it's a gift. 
This too would make a good study if you're looking for a topic to look into. Okay, at any rate, uh, true repentance can only occur after what we call an effectual calling. Those who he calls you justifies. After this has occurred, you have a regeneration of the heart. The book of Ezekiel talks about taking that heart of stone and giving one a heart of flesh. And when this regeneration happens, it's at that point one realizes that they have offended not only a holy God, the holy God. And they begin to feel that sorrow associated for what they have done. And it's only then that man can see the need to put off that old man and to put on the new. This is the beginning of repentance. The lost man can't do that on his own. He can't just decide, I don't want to be lost anymore because we were dead in our trespasses and sins. Dead people don't make decisions. They just don't do it. So what is Peter doing here in calling the people to repent? Well, basically, he's continuing the work of many of the prophets before him. Jeremiah 8, verses 4 and 5. And it reads, it says, You shall say to them, and this is God talking to Jeremiah. He says, You shall say to them, Thus says Yahweh, Do men fall and not get up again? Does one turn away and not turn back? Why then has this people Jerusalem turned away in continual faithlessness They hold fast to deceit, and they refuse to return. This word return, used by Peter over and over again in the Old Testament. He used that word return because the Jewish people in Jerusalem at that time would know exactly what he was referring to. That's what the prophet Jeremiah said. That's the same words he used. Ezekiel 14.6 states, Therefore say to the house of Israel, Once again, it's God saying to Ezekiel, Say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord Yahweh, Turn back and turn away from your idols and turn your faces away from all your abominations. This word turn. Numerous other verses where the Jews have turned to abominable worship exist. God has used his word through the prophets to tell them to repent and return. Over and over again. And while these words may seem a little strange to us, we know that they would have been very familiar to all the Jews. And Peter's message of repentance is an integral part of the message of hope for those who are guilty of rejecting the Messiah and rebelling against the holy God. These people need forgiveness. John the Baptist He kind of added to this message of repentance when he addressed the Pharisees and the Sadducees. He is indicting them of having dead faith almost identical to what James did in his book. Matthew 3, verses 6 through 10 reads, And they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River as they confessed their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers! Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? 
Therefore, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not suppose that you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham for our father. For I say to you that from these stones, God is able to raise up children to Abraham. And the axe is already laid at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. John the Baptist is simply pointing out here that true repentance is more than saying a few words. It's more than a simple act of getting baptized. Turning from the old man to the new man, man will produce evidence. There's going to be fruit. And his problem with the Jewish leaders is not simply their rejection of Jesus Christ. But their applications of a work-based religion that they applied strictly and sternly to the Jerusalem Jews daily. You must follow all these ordinances. But they didn't follow them themselves. They were hypocrites. They didn't follow the own law that they enforced on everyone else. Do not misunderstand me here. The Old Testament has been used to lead people to Christ throughout the centuries. And Peter's doing that very thing repeatedly here in Acts. The belief of these Jewish leaders deny Christ. And there's a large difference here. The Bible actually notes four prompts that are motivators or drivers of people to repentance. Four methods, and I'm sure there are more, but four that it clearly talks about to drive people toward repentance. The knowledge of God's truth is one. You'll find that in Luke chapter 16 and John chapter 20. Another one is sorrow. That's found in 2 Corinthians 7. God's goodness and his kindness are used to drive people toward repentance, according to Romans 2. And the fear of the final judgment, according to Acts chapter 17. The fear of the final judgment, that's what the churches that I attended with my dad all those years as a kid were. Turn or burn was the message. People were saved in that environment. So why is repentance important? If we go on in this verse 19, it says, So that your sins may be wiped away. Repentance is a gateway to inheritance, inheriting God's eschatological promise, the forgiveness of sins. I find some... Some words that, that David spoke that he penned in Psalm 51. I'm not guilty of what David done here, but when I read this, I'm convicted. So I'm going to read through this with you. This is Nathan the prophet came to David concerning his involvement with Bathsheba. And David penned Psalm 51, verses 1 through 13 is what I'm going to read. So David says, Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness. According to the abundance of your compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. 
For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are justified when you speak and pure when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Behold, you delight in truth in the innermost being, and in the hidden part you will make me know wisdom. Purify me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness. Let the bones which you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of salvation and sustain to me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your way and sinners will be converted to you. This was written in the Old Testament and not one time does he say anything here about taking lambs to the temple so the priest could get him forgiveness of his sins. He is on his knees begging for forgiveness. If you ever need an example of what a prayer of forgiveness sounds like, note this passage. He's not calling names here. It's not about Bathsheba. It's not about her husband and the murder that happened there. It's about him and what he did and the pain that he feels from his iniquity, the pain that the sin has brought into him. He has turned away from God, a man after God's own heart. The sorrow that he feels here, I mean, it's, it's gut-wrenching when you think about it. When you think about the Old Testament and all the Levitical law, what was he supposed to do? Well, let's go get a scapegoat and, and we'll take a blemishless lamb and, and we'll, we'll go and do a sacrifice at the temple. He's not doing that here. He's talking about seeing sinners converted. The gospel was there in the Old Testament too. Now, I really do find it hard to read that without feeling some emotion there, some conviction, some guilt. I can sympathize with David. I may not be guilty of these transgressions, but I'm guilty of plenty of other things. I believe that David's writing this section of the Psalms was was for a reason, and it's not only his own reasons for the forgiveness of sin. This is an excellent example of what a prayer of forgiveness is like. And I think it would be perfectly fine for us to read this in our prayer when we're asking for forgiveness. Like David, these are the things I'm feeling. This is where I am. I do not see anything wrong with that. You can be specific in your prayers for forgiveness. It's between you and God. But God knows your sin. He knows every detail about it. He knew it before you did it. And this is a prayer of of a man after God's own heart. So Judaism, like so many other works-based belief systems, weighs men down with laws and rituals. And they're hard for men to bear, yet Jesus says in Luke 46, or Luke 11, verse 46, Woe to you scholars of the law as well, 
For you weigh men down with burdens that are hard to bear, and you yourselves will not even touch the burdens with one of your fingers. He's accusing them of enforcing these work-based laws, much like John the Baptist had done, that they themselves do not keep. They're among the first to hold people accountable. However, just a few verses before that, in verse 30, he had told them, For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. What does Jesus mean when he says his burden is light? When we fully commit to Christ, there's nothing more liberating than what you experience when you fully commit to Christ. It doesn't matter what the guy down the road thinks anymore. It doesn't matter what the people on the news channel say. It doesn't matter what the world thinks. Because when you hold this, you're holding the truth. And there's no question. They can deny it all they want to. It's very liberating. When you fully commit, when you give it over. And I'm still working on that. But the more I'm able to give up, the more I'm able to commit, the more liberating it gets. The more freedom I have to speak the truth. And not have concern and not have worry to be a witness to those that need to hear the truth. And when we, when we believe that the Bible is the absolute truth, we finally have a standard to support ourselves by. There's a reason why we believe what we believe. It's right here. You don't have to believe it if you don't want to, but this is the truth whether you believe it or not, and I'm going to base my life on it. That's what we do. A yoke is easy, or burden is light. If you're saved with just a little application in your life, you find freedom to produce this fruit that we talked about earlier. Before you were saved, you had no choice, no matter how great a thing you did, if you donated a million dollars to the orphanage down the street. If you're not saved, you didn't do it for the glory of God. And that is not the fruit that's being talked about by John the Baptist, by James, and so many others. John chapter 8, verse 34 says, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. Slaves must be set free. Jesus Christ bled and died in my place and in yours. Our thankfulness should bring us to this point of absolute surrender to him. And that's when the burden really becomes lighter, when you give it up. His yoke is easy. Trust him. Just do it. Your, your conscience no longer has to toil over things. His spirit doesn't matter now because I have the true spirit within me. And I feel like this relief is what Peter's talking about when he goes on in verse 19 and talks about times of refreshing. Now, as I studied through this, there are people who, who relate this term times of refreshing to the period of rest restoration we'll talk about in a verse or two and apply it to end times. <clears throat> I can't say they're completely wrong in that. 
but I really feel like this refers to the age of salvation when it's, which is available only through faith in Jesus Christ. It's, it's available across all times, past, present, and future. And there's some dogmatic opinions around this. I really find where it says the word times that it applies to those peaks that we have in our life with Christ. Those days when we just really are able to be convinced and know that he's there with us. There's just no question. You know what I'm talking about. Those points in time when you just feel like your relationship with him is just so strong. And then you can count on those times where you just feel like you're distanced for some reason. These times are refreshing or what we must really embrace. This word's not only used here, it's used in one other place. If you look in the Greek Septuagint, you'll find it in Exodus chapter 8, verse 11. And this is the feeling of relief that occurred across all Egypt when the curse of the plague of frogs had ended. It's refreshing. I think that's the only two places this word is used in this manner. The word is anopsuxis. Thank you, Jason. Nowhere do the scriptures promise that everything will be easy in walking with this walk with Christ. We're promised times of persecution. We're promised to see trials and tribulations. However, we're also promised that through our salvation in Christ, we will have these times of refreshing. If you're saved here tonight, you know about these. You've seen them. You've experienced them. Those times when you just know he's right there. Those times when some event happens or a circumstance changes. And it's just so obvious that whatever this thing was, it was a God thing because it couldn't have happened any other way. You know those points in time when all you can do is say, thank you. And that's all you got. That's all you can do. He did it. No matter how hard you may have tried without success, he did it in the blink of an eye. And it was over. And it was done. One thing we know from certain about these times of refreshing is that they come from the presence of the Lord. That's as we go on deeper into verse 19. The refreshing flows immediately from his presence. How refreshing it must be to the sheep when they hear their shepherd's voice and they come running to him. And we are Christ's sheep. And if we saved, we heard his voice. We followed him. We went to him. There's likely an entire teaching on this came from, come from the presence of the Lord. The wonderful thing that happens is that his elect people are forever preserved in his presence. And no man can snatch him from his hand. Amen. Now that's a lot of words for one verse, but that's verse 19. There's a lot in this verse, and we really need to understand and meditate on some of these things. So I'm going to move on to verse 20 here. <clears throat> and it reads, And that he may send Jesus the Christ, <clears throat> excuse me, appointed for you. Ultimately, Peter is reminding the Jerusalem Jews that they've been awaiting 
the promised Messiah whom God has appointed for you. And this was their messianic expectation being fulfilled and they somehow missed it. And God chose that Jesus was and is the Messiah. And it was appointed and assigned to him as a member of the Godhead. And in the past, he did come to the Jews as the Messiah. Today, he still comes to all of his sheep who do hear his voice and they repent and they believe. They return, if you will. And at the end of the age, he will return again. And he'll make his final claim on all that his father has given him. So as we go forward, we're going to talk about this end of the age just a little. Because verse 21 says, whom heaven must receive until the period of restoration. The period of restoration of all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets and from ancient time. So here I stand at an eschatological crossroad. Here I stand with a decision to make. So you know what I decided? I decided to let God's word do the talking for us. Turn with me, if you will, to Isaiah chapter 65. I think we're going to jump in here. Verse 17. Isaiah 65, verse 17. For behold, I am creating a new heavens and a new earth. And the former things will not be remembered or come upon the heart. But be joyful and rejoice forever in what I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem for rejoicing and her people for joy. I will also rejoice in Jerusalem and be joyful in my people. And there will no longer be heard in her the voice of weeping and the voice of crying. No longer will there be in it an infant who lives but a few days. Or an old man who dies not, who does not fulfill his days. For the youth will die at the age of a hundred, and one who does not reach the age of one hundred will be thought accursed. They will build houses and inhabit them. They will also plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They will not build and another inhabit. They will not plant and another eat. For as the lifetime of a tree, so will the days of my people and my chosen ones will wear out the work of their hands. They will not labor in vain or bear children for terror. For they are the seed of those blessed by Yahweh and their offspring with them. <clears throat> Let's also go to Revelation. I don't know how much time I've got, but I think that's where we need to go. Chapter 21. It's almost the end, isn't it? The new heaven and earth. And then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away. There is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. 
and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death, and there will no longer be mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I'm making all things new. And he said, Right, for these words are faithful and true. <clears throat> and then he said, They are done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. He who overcomes will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But for the cowardly and the unbelieving and the abominable and the murderers, the sexually immoral persons, the sorcerers and the idolaters and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and with brimstone, which is the second death. Then one of the seven angels who have the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and spoke with me saying, come here, I want to show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. We are that bride. We're the bride of Christ. Now there's three <clears throat> predominant teachings concerning end times and eschatology. And I've studied them all to some degree. And in my opinion, they all have gaps. They all have things that you can't understand or don't understand. You have the premillennialist. You have the amillennialist. You have the postmillennialist. And what I've come to realize most of all about these three <clears throat> is not only are these teachings held by different people within this church, these are people that I care about deeply. These are teachings that they hold, and they have scriptural reasons for holding these teachings. Some may be stronger than others, but there are scriptural reasons that they believe what they do about the end times and which one of these teachings that they do. What I know is, what I would really like to see here is what Josh has spoken about many times around unity. John MacArthur and R.C. Sproul were best of friends. When R.C. Sproul died, it was held in this big Presbyterian church, and you can find the eulogy on YouTube. And there were tons of highly touted Presbyterian preachers that would have been more than honored to have spoken at R.C. Sproul's eulogy in that Presbyterian church. But you know who did it? John MacArthur did. And as I watched that, I could almost feel the tension in the room with the Presbyterian pastor sitting on that front row and up on the stage because here's this Baptist preacher doing the eulogy of one of the greatest men the Presbyterian church has ever had. And they had serious differences, not only in eschatology, but around a doctrine probably even more important than that as far as I'm concerned. Because R.C. Sproul, he was a paedo-baptist. He believed in infant baptism. And John MacArthur, of course, is a believer's baptism. And they were able to put their differences aside and battle arm in arm in defending the faith. When many people in the Protestant church, if you will, wanted to admit in the Catholic church, 
And they went to this convention along with James D. Kennedy and stood against some pretty high-powered people, arm-in-arm with differences in their beliefs that were not salvatory, but defended the faith together. That's what I see us needing here in this church. We're standing on the precipice of potentially purchasing this church and not having a payment. Do you understand what a blessing that is? There are churches all over the Tri-Cities that would die for the opportunity to have their building paid for. And here we are being blessed with that opportunity. What we need is unity. What we need is commitment. We've got a lot of things around here we're going to need to do if this purchase goes through. We're going to need help. Some things we'll have to hire out. The electrical work that needs to be done is probably something we need a certified electrician to do. The HVAC work that we would like to do probably needs to be hired out by somebody that knows what they're doing. Josh has done everything he can to keep the systems that we've got now limping along, and thank you so much for that. But there's a lot of things we can do. There's a lot of things around here that just need to be cleaned up and, and, and gone through and repurposed. And we've got a sewer scenario we've got to figure out. And yeah, we may have to hire some of that out, but some of that we may be able to do. What we need is commitment. And a lot of it, we need help. We need unity. We need to be arm in arm find our way to the other end of this bridge. So I got on a soapbox, sorry. Um, it's a golden opportunity that we have and I don't want us to miss it. I've seen churches divided because of eschatological beliefs. I've seen family members that won't talk to each other because one believes this and one believes that. And I stand opposed to that. There's nothing wrong with healthy debate. Josh and I do it from time to time because we don't see eye to eye on everything eschatological. I don't think we have an issue with baptism, though, do we? Okay, okay. Let me, let me get back to the, the scripture here. So, as we part ways this evening, I'd like for us to concentrate on the fact that those who are of the elect have had their sins washed away and thus they will experience this new heaven and new earth. 1 Corinthians 2.9 tells us that the eyes have not seen and the ears have not heard all the things that God has prepared for us. And I just can't imagine. It's going to be so incredible. I'm not suicidal. <clears throat> but I'm happy to say that I'm ready to go. So many things that I want to see. So many things that I want to experience. You know, I can't imagine lines laying with lambs and streets of gold and gates of pearl. And, and maybe these things are symbolic and maybe they're not. But it's going to be, I mean, I've seen pearls as big as a small marble. Can you imagine one big enough to build that door back there out of or even bigger? It's how great it's going to be. We will know and be known. Do you realize what that means? 
Can you imagine, we talked about David a minute ago, walking down those streets of gold, and you pass David, and he comes over and puts his arm around you and says, Hello, Josh, how you doing, brother? You're going to know and be known. Abraham is going to know you by name. We talked about MacArthur and Sproul and Kennedy, and you can put them sitting on a beside the river with John Owen and Tyndale and Luther and Spurgeon and Calvin and all these great men that we hear about, and you'll be welcome into that conversation. I'm going to get to see my grandparents again. <coughs> Excuse me. I'm going to get to see my dad. But you know what? The thing that we need to look forward to the most is seeing that King of Kings and the Lord of Lords and the host of hosts. The one that died for us to make it even possible that we could enter such a place to see Jesus Christ. And have that opportunity to say thank you face to face. We walk away from here this evening. Let's think about the treasure that's been promised to us. Amen. Let's pray. Once again, Lord, your word has gone forth. And we know that it will not return void. Please use us as a tool in your hand. Give us the words that you would have us to speak in our daily walk. I'm so appreciative of our church family's commitment to come to this midweek service. I ask that you bless them, Lord. Please deliver us home safely. Bring us back at the next appointed time. And we pray this in the saving name of Jesus Christ. All God's children said, Amen. <clears throat>